Good morning. It is good to be here this morning. Everyone good? That's good. You fell right into my trick. Ever wondered about the word good and what it actually means? What's it mean to you? From my experiences, it's a really hard word to define. Kind of like uh, nailing jello to a wall. It can be a, can be a watered down word. Like when parents have an unruly kid who, are cont- who continually disobeys and, and does things that he or she isn't supposed to do, and then they finally do something right, and what do we say? Oh, good boy. Good girl. I, I've probably shared with you before my theories on owning dogs. Now that we live on a, I guess it's a a hobby farm, I figure anything that, an animal that doesn't go into a bowl belongs in a barn. And uh, uh, we've tried twice to have dogs, uh, but uh, yes, constantly would do things that drove us crazy. I like peeing on the floor or eating off the kitchen floor. and, and, And I know dog lovers think those are really nice things about dogs, but... But we had Pepper and we had Holly and both of them were the same. And when they finally would actually go outside and, and, and do their business where they were supposed to, it was good, you know, good girl in this case. Good girl, good girl. And go, well, what in the world does good mean? Finally, it did something right and I still had to clean it up afterwards. So I'm not really quite sure what was so good about that. So it's a, it's a watered down word and it can be a thoughtless word. How many people... St- I asked you, how are you doing? Everyone doing good? And you all went, right? You could be having the worst day and someone says, hey, how you doing? Oh, good. Oh, that's great. And then they just keep walking by. Throw them off and say, man, I'm having a horrible day. And they'll say, that's great. And they'll just keep walking by. So it can be a thoughtless word and it can be a manipulative word. How many had parents who told you that if you eat this disgusting food, it will be good for you? And that's why you should eat it. And, and we see TV ads and, and, and magazine ads with the same marketing manipulation that you need this product. You need to try this. You need to have it. Why? Because it's good for you. You need it because it's good. And so as a result, the word good becomes a really bland word. It's too quickly used. It's overutilized, and I don't think that it draws out the emotion that maybe is being intended. And yet given all that, we've been taught, and a lot of us have taught our children to pray, God is great, God is good. And I know still, as I, I pray with, with my boys, often I will thank God for his goodness. But what's that mean to you? Imagine for a child, it, it evokes awe and, and, and wonder, but you know, as you get older, those words repeated over and over again kind of lose their punch. It doesn't mean that we don't keep saying it. But do we trust it? 
We keep saying those words, but deep inside there's a struggle to really believe it's true and to let it transform our life. Because I realized when I very strategically and intentionally asked you, are you doing good this morning? I knew that the majority of you would just shake your head yes. But I know that all of you aren't as good as you just said that you were. That some of you are battling issues, are going through troubles, find yourself in struggles, are in life situations that have caused you to question whether God really is good. And that might be your place this morning where, where you're starting as, as we, we begin this message that, that you question whether God really is good, whether he's truly good, whether he's good all the time. But let me submit to you our conclusions, our, our view on the goodness of God will determine the way that we live our life. It will determine who or what we will trust, who or what we will give control to, who or what we will show gratitude to. It will impact the way that we worship. I was driving uh, up to South River yesterday and listening to Life 100.3 as you just kept changing channels. And, and uh, several times I heard them repeat uh, a chant. It's a, I believe it's an African chant. Uh, if you've watched the God's Not Dead movies, you've, you've heard the chant. And it's not a really uncommon chant. But it's the one, and if you know it, help me out. God is good. All the time. All the time, God is good. I heard that numerous times. And, and the, uh, the African pastor in the God's Not Dead movies often says that. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. And my challenge for us this morning is this question. Do you really believe that God is good? And if you do, how is it impacting your life? And if you say that you believe that God is good all the time, all the time, God is good, why is it not revolutionizing, transforming the way that we live? This morning I want to finish what we started last week, looking at Psalm 100. And I said to you last week, although last week we, we kind of split the psalm into two parts, I said that, that there is another way of looking at the psalm, and that is to see that there is an underlying theme that runs its course right through the psalm. Uh, that the psalmist, and I never said this last week, so let, let me just kind of correct myself. We don't really know who wrote the psalm. Some believe that it's very similar to what King David would have written. The, the early Greeks believe that King David wrote the psalm. So if I say David or if I say the psalmist, we're not really sure. But whoever wrote Psalm 100 was convinced of something. That there was an underlying theme that fueled and inspired everything we read in the psalm. And that is this. God is good. And that leads the psalmist 
to inviting us to join him in this great call to worship. If you haven't turned uh, to Psalm 100, turn and let's, let's, let's read it once again together. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It's he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And uh, for those of you uh, who, who weren't here last week, and for those of you who just uh, would like a, a little bit of a recap, uh, we started by looking at the fact that God cares about the way that we worship. That, that he wants us to worship him willingly, joyfully, gladly, and informed. Which results in, in us bringing God this exuberant worship. And that's the gist of Psalm 100. It's a call to worship. I mentioned last week that it's also an enthronement psalm. It's one of eight that we find in the psalm. Psalm 93 through Psalm 98. And, and the purpose or, or, or the, the psalm is, as an enthronement psalm is to remind and to encourage the reader to worship God as creator and as king and as judge and as revealer of truth, as warrior, and as the great and good shepherd. The purpose of this enthronement psalm is, is that when we consider the psalm, we are to bow uh, and reverence the one seated upon the throne, uh, realizing the, the supremacy of his reign, of his uh, his majesty and his power. As I said last week, we split the psalm into two parts, and I suggested that we can see the first part in verses 1, 2, and 4, uh, where the psalmist gives us this great call to worship. And as we saw last week, it's, it's a noisy call to worship. In verse 1, we're set, told to shout for joy to the Lord, and, and this shouting, it's, it's, it's a ringing noise. As I said last week, it's, it's a homage shout, the kind of shout that you would give when a victorious warrior came back from the battlefield, or the kind of spontaneous praise and worship uh, one would give uh, a leader or a dignitary at, at a national celebration. And so it's this enthronement psalm. And so we're to shout for joy to the Lord. In verse 2, we're to worship or serve the Lord with gladness. To come before him with joyful songs. So again, this sense of exuberance and, and energy as we come before God in worship. And then in verse 4, we saw that this call to worship intensifies. As we're to bring this energy and this joy and this gladness and this willingness to serve right into the very presence of God. As we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We give thanks to him and praise his name. So that's the first part, the call to worship. But then we saw in verses 3 and verse 5 that we have the rationale. Uh, the psalmist gives us the reasons why we are to bring that kind of worship to God. You see, we're not just to come in and to give joyful and glad and exuberant worship without any head knowledge. 
But rather, the psalmist wants to know that our worship is inspired. It's fueled by our knowledge. We're to bring joyful, glad, exuberant worship, but we're also supposed to bring informed worship. That's why I said last week, that word know in verse 3 is, is a pivotal word. Know that the Lord is God. And that word know refers to experiential knowledge that we, we hold with absolute certainty. Knowledge that, that we hold beyond the shadow of a doubt. And in relation to God, it's, it, it involves making a distinction. Having it nailed down what we believe to be true about who God is, what he's like, and what he's done. And it's this knowledge that fuels our worship. And so, if we truly are worshipers, we're eager and energetic to discover and to, to reveal and to dig deeper in the truths concerning God so that it inspires our worship even greater, with more exuberance. So what is it that the psalmist has nailed down about God that, that leads him and, and inspires him to call us to join him in this great call to worship? And ultimately, what the psalmist has nailed down is this. God is good. All the time. God is good. But I realize when I say that, and I can't expect that you're going to accept that just because I said it. I was thinking that yesterday we were at a funeral service, and uh, I'm assuming that most of the people there weren't followers of Jesus. I couldn't help but listen to what was said from the front and wonder how it was hitting the ears of the listeners. If it was just like words bouncing off the ceiling or bouncing off their ears and bouncing back. A lot of what the person facilitating the funeral service said was, was true and, and I agreed with, but just because he said it didn't mean that everyone was listening, accepted it. And it's the same here. Just because the psalmist says God is good, just because I've told you that God is good, doesn't mean that you're going to accept it. Because I realize, despite the fact that most of you nodded your head at the very beginning of the message, that everything's good. Some of you are quite disillusioned when it comes to the goodness of God. And you've got your reason. And it's not new. You only have to turn a few pages into the Bible to find an example of disillusionment with the goodness of God. Satan convinces Eve to question the goodness of God. That God is holding back some goodness from her and Adam. That there's more to be had, but he's, he's not letting them have it. 
Satan tells Eve that if you want to really experience life to its fullest, you have to put your trust in yourself. You've got to take back control of your own life. And we know what happened. Adam and Eve overstepped the boundaries that God had created for them to be in a right relationship with them, and they sinned. And man and woman were separated from God by sin, a plague that has carried on throughout history. It all began with a question, a disillusionment concerning God's goodness. You only have to flip a few pages back in, in the Psalms to Psalm 73 and, and a Psalm of Asaph. And he finds himself questioning God's goodness. You'd probably say that uh, Asaph had a distorted view of God's goodness. At least that's what we'd say. But when we realize what his distorted view concerning God's goodness was, you might realize that it's a little more familiar to us than something we would happily label as a distorted view. You see, Asaph believed that if God was good, then he would be experiencing health and wealth. And at the, in the beginning of Psalm 73, Asaph isn't. And coupled to that is, is his bewilderment why the evil people who have no consideration of God seem to experience all the blessings of life. Why, if God is good, does he allow that? And then for me, who does ta- have consideration for God, to not even be experiencing good health and yet experiencing poverty. It isn't until Asaph finds himself in the sanctuary when God gives him a wake-up call and he corrects that view of what the goodness of God actually means. I'll leave that to you to, to read through Psalm 73 and see what God reveals to Asaph near the end. But, but this disillusionment with God, we have our reasons. Eve and Adam, they had their reason. Asaph seemingly had his reason. And, and, and we might sympathize with them. We might understand why they concluded that God might not be as good as people say that he is. We may agree with them. But here's the problem. If we reject or refuse or resist the notion that God is good all the time, we won't trust him. We won't fully commit ourselves to him. We will not serve him with gladness. We will not experience the joy and the contentment that God has intended and desires for followers of Jesus to experience. We will fall into sin. We will look for other things and other people to give control of our life over to. We will be more consumed with the physical 
than we will with the spiritual. And so the answer to the question is extremely important, and the question is this. What is it that the psalmist knew to be true about God, who he was, what he was like, what he has done, that we can know, so that we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is good. Maybe we should take a step back. As I said, the word good is hard to define. We keep saying God is good, God is good, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. What do we mean when we say God is good? Some who are much more educated than I have, have suggested some definitions. Stephen Chernock in his uh, uh, theology book says that God is good means that God deals well and bountifully with his creatures. Uh, E.W. Tozer, uh, speaking on the same topic, said uh, that the goodness of God is that which disposes God to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. Uh, I came across a simpler definition that's easier for my smaller brain to to handle, is that, that God is good simply means he shares what he has with others. Theologians say that that God's goodness is one of his perfections. I like how the two of those things go together. Especially as one who is on the receiving end of God's blessings and God's goodness. That that God being good means that he shares what he has with others. And it's one of his perfections. He does it really well. That's good news for for you uh, and for I when we speak of the goodness of God, we're, we're speaking uh, of God's character. Goodness is one of his attributes. In fact, it, it really is the sum of all of his attributes. Because all God is, is good. And so we praise him. All that God does is good. And, and so he's worthy of our worship. God is the source of all that's good. And so we praise him. God is incapable of doing anything that isn't good. And so we praise him. And we go back to that, that mealtime prayer that we've been taught and we, we teach our children. And I find so much comfort in it. God is great. God is good. God is great. And the psalmist last week, we looked at verse 3. What's he say? He says, know that the Lord is God. He has no rivals. He's the chief. He is supreme in authority and majesty and power. This is an enthronement psalm. He's the one seated on the throne. He is the one that we bow and reverence to. but he's good. He's great. That should draw out a little bit of fear. Because in contrast to his greatness, we're kind of puny. But he's good. God is great. And God is good. David's convinced, 
the psalmist, is convinced that God is good. And throughout the psalm, he, he points to characteristics and, and examples of God's goodness. This great God that is good, he's the one that has created us. We see his goodness in creation. And as I said last week, we can look out the window, even though it's rainy, we, we see grass growing. We see the beauty of God's creation all around us. He chose to, to create you and I in, in his image. And, and so we praise God for his goodness and creation. But specifically, the psalmist is talking about his recreation, his recreative works, salvation, how he, how he took the Israelites out of captivity led them through the wilderness and settled them in the promised land and he made them his people. And he made a covenant agreement with them. And I showed you last week how we see this carry on through into the New Testament and how God has redeemed us through Jesus Christ. He has reached down and he has paid the price to free us from the slavery and the power and the penalty of sin. And he's made us his people. And so we see God's goodness in his creation. He's made us. We're his. And the psalmist points to God's goodness in his care for his people. At the end of verse 3, it says, We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. As I said last week, that's our security. That's our identity. And for those of you who can't say that life is good, therefore God's not good all the time. If it's because you feel alone, afraid, you feel needy, you feel hurt, you feel people are looking at you and making fun of you, remember, you are his. You belong to him. That's your identity. That's your security. God is good. And then the psalmist continues into verse 5. And he shows that God is good because his love endures forever. You know, if we had the time and everyone came up here and and shared their experiences of, of giving and receiving love, It would be kind of an interesting time. I imagine there would be some real tragic stories. Some real sad stories. There would be some real funny stories. Imagine if we all stood up here and and shared the person to whom we said that we loved them. Or the person who first said to us, they loved us. And then share, do we even know where that person is anymore? I'm sure there'd be some funny stories. There'd be a lot of people who've been lost throughout the years. But the psalmist says, in contrast to our temporary and our, our, our fickle and on and off temporary kind of love, God's love is constant. It endures forever. His tank is always full. We can never exhaust it. His, his love is personal. It's based on his intimate knowledge of you and I and what our needs are. Verse 5 gives us a window into the the greatest demonstration of love. 
His love endures forever. Open that door. Look through the window and you'll see Calvary. God's love demonstrated in redeeming us from the penalty of sin is a demonstrated love that will never be matched. And think of the players. A holy and awesome God, not bound to love us, by every rights could destroy us. And then the creatures that he loves. Not worthy of his love, not having earned it, not deserving anything from God. Yet Paul tells us in in Romans 5, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for love, died for us. That's the enduring love of God, demonstrated at Calvary. A sure-tell sign that God is good. And then the psalmist continues and says that not only does his love endure forever, but that his faithfulness continues through all generations. I was out with Allison's uh, dad and his wife uh, last weekend, and we were driving along in his his new vehicle. And for as long as I've known Allison's dad, he's always had a pickup truck, and he has had a, a Lexus SUV. And sometimes he has two Lexus SUVs. And he would then move to another Lexus SUV. Well, all of a sudden, he's driving a Hyundai SUV. And so we're driving along, and I, I mentioned to him that we were thinking of possibly getting a, a new vehicle uh, for Allison to drive. And he said, we got to check out Hyundai. I'm going, Don, you're a Lexus man. Like, why all of a sudden are you so hyped up on Hyundai? He said, because it's the best warranty in the business. If you know Don, you'd understand that that's an important thing to him. He said, not 60,000, 100,000 kilometers. They stand behind their vehicle. They stand behind the promises that they make. And I get it. Like it's, it's, it's got to be somewhat comforting to know that this car company is, is willing to stand behind their product for 40,000 more kilometers than most companies are, are willing to stand behind their product. But there is an end. The, the warranty isn't limitless. It expires. There is a time where, and I'm convinced they put some kind of little chip in the computer somewhere in the vehicle that at 101,000 kilometers, something is going to go wrong and they're not going to stand behind it. Wouldn't it be great if we could find something that doesn't have a warranty expiry date? Who will always stand behind their promises. Because that would really be good. And the psalmist says, there is someone, and that's God. His faithfulness continues through all generations. He stands behind his promises. He's absolutely dependable to do what he says that he will do. 
When he says that he loves you, when he says that he will save you, when he says that, that you can trust in him, that he will protect you, that he will provide for you, that he will come back for you. And on and on and on, hundreds of promises that we find in scripture when God says it, he will do it because he's good. He's perfectly good and his faithfulness continues to all generations. And that is the God who is seated on the throne. Our king, our great shepherd, who we are to worship joyfully and gladly with exuberance, being informed, knowing beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is good. As Richard uh, facilitated the table last week, he drew our attention to, uh, I think the first passage was in Hebrews 12. And as I turned to it, I, I, my eye glanced to the benediction in Hebrews 13. And I was reminded of something. That the, the, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews saw that the ministry of the shepherd king of Psalm 100 is fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who is and, and will continue to be the great shepherd uh, of the sheep. You don't have to turn to it, but the benediction at the end of Hebrews says, Now be the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I was reminded of another thing. It's not just the writer of the letter to the Hebrews who refers to Jesus as the good shepherd or the great shepherd. Jesus made that claim himself. And if you want to flip to it in the Gospel of John chapter 10, we see Jesus making this claim two times. John 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. You've got to understand, if you were a Jewish uh, person in the audience when Jesus said that, and you knew your scriptures, you most likely would be stunned at the audacity of Jesus to make that claim. Because what Jesus was ba basically saying is that he was God. That it was him to whom passages concerning the shepherd king, like Psalm 100, are referring to. But when you hear the words of Jesus, you'll realize he, he wasn't saying this to brag. He was saying this in humility. Because what he was saying is that as the shepherd... He was willing to die for the sheep. Look at what Jesus said in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. The command I received, this command I received from my Father. Jesus claims to be the good shepherd, and it's a mark of death. Jesus says, as shepherd, I must die for the sheep. And I do this willingly. I volunteer to do this, expressing suffering and and sacrificial love. And Jesus promised that he would live again because this, this death and coming back to life of the good shepherd is a great victory. That's why the praise team read from Philippians 2 where Paul said because of what Jesus was willing to do, God's exalted him to the highest place. And in the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. That's why in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 in this, that great throne scene where, where they're looking for someone who's worthy to open the scroll and they find it and it's, 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 it's such an amazing passage because the good shepherd comes into the scene looking like a lamb who's been slain and they realize that there is someone who's worthy to open the scroll and it's Jesus. And it says, and I... It says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased, your, purchased uh, for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worship people. This is our God. This is our savior. This is the one who's seated on the throne. Will we worship him today? The people that heard Jesus in John 10 claim that he was the good shepherd. They, they didn't all, they didn't all agree with him. Lots of times we end looking at that passage at verse 18. And let me just close with, with verse 19 and verse 20. And 21. It says, The Jews who heard these words were again divided. And I've said that many times from this platform. Jesus is a dividing line for all of humanity. You're either with him or against him. You either believe in him or you don't believe in him. It says, The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, 
These are not the sayings of someone possessed by a demon. Can a demon, a demon open the eyes of the blind? And Jesus had just healed a blind person. What's your response to this this king, this good shepherd, this savior, this one who is given of himself, who is seated on the throne, who is exalted to all, to him all praise and honor is due. What is your response? My prayer is that you'll respond by joining together in worshiping and praising him.